Sports Radio 1043 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's Terry. All right, let's go right back to the phones. And joining us, the man who doesn't care what the conditions are, what the fish are doing. He just adapts and catches them anyway, Mr. Nate Zielinski. Good morning. Good morning, Terry. How are you today? I'm doing well. And, you know, we talk about hot bites and tough bites, and you and I have both in the past fished in a lot of major tournaments, and we'd come off of fronts or we'd come off of weather changes or water level changes. And I, I've been more than one tournament where I bitched and complained that it shut the fishing down. But you know what? Somebody caught him because somebody won the tournament. I mean, that's just it, Terry. I mean, I, I hate to say it because you know as well as anybody, we all like excuses, right? We never, ever can go home you know, and talk to your spouse and just say that I wasn't good enough, right? We have to blame something. Uh, but at the end of the day, these fish eat daily. It's just one of those things. They don't eat. We all know what happens. So uh, the, the feed bite and, and, and the feeding continues. It's just up to you as the angler to adapt and, uh, you know, sometimes force feed them. And, and that's just what it takes. Well, I, I remember coming home from a fishing trip with Carl Maltz. He's the, he was the editor of Fishing Facts magazine. This goes back decades when I was a young writer. And we all we were all pretty full of ourselves, the guys who wrote for Fishing Facts and in Fishermen. We we thought we were, you know, pretty cool. And Carl and I are driving driving back and we had just the most terrible outing. I, we just sucked. And Carl turned to me and we were making, like you said, all the excuses. And Carl turned to me and said, How come we can never just admit that sometimes the fish win? <laughs> I mean, that's just it. I mean, you know, I'm on the water seven days a week, two trips a day most days and I hear it all at the boat dock of why the fish didn't bite. You know what I mean? It's every excuse under the sun. It's never, I couldn't figure it out. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. So that's what it is. But no, you know, Terry, we fish through everything. And I, I hate to say, you know, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. But, I mean, I can't tell you in the last three weeks how many times I've had to shovel snow out of my boat lately. Uh, you know, whether up at Williams Fork or some of the other high country lakes, uh, we fish through it all. And you just have to adapt. And honestly, Terry, I saw some major effects from this last storm at a handful of fisheries. We had some effects at Pueblo. Uh, we had some effects at Cherry Creek. And then other fisheries didn't seem to be, you know, bothered as much. Uh, you know, just early in this week, we saw Cherry Creek go through a kind of a slowdown with that storm front. You know, basically during the storm, day after the storm, uh, we saw some water temperatures cooling and we saw some fish kind of get, you know, in a little bit of a funk. And then Pueblo, same thing. Pueblo is a little bit more on the water clarity side, more so than the temperature side. But then we had fishers like Chatfield that had no effect. I mean, on the same day, I watched fish at Cherry Creek shut down. I watched fish at Chatfield fire up. Um, so, so it's one of those things that you, it's hard to predict. And we as anglers want to predict it. We want to have a good idea of what the storm's going to do. But at the end of the day, you just have to adapt and roll with it. Sometimes as these conditions and storm fronts move through, it changes. If, I mean, sometimes even hourly. So it's all about making that, uh, you know, making that quick change, adapting to the condition, um, and doing everything you can to, to create those bites for yourself. Well, you know, you made a great point. Uh, when I, you know, 
I used to say I grew up in Minnesota. Karen reminds me that I just got older there. I never grew up. But <laughs> we'd, we'd, we'd had a slow fishing day on one lake and a lake across the road, because there was 10,000 lakes there, could be yeah. hot. And so when you were comparing Cherry Creek and Chatfield, is there any variable that you picked up that might have had Chatfield booming and Cherry Creek not? Is it the extra depth at Chatfield? Was there a water clarity difference, or is it just the way the fish were reacting, the bait? Did you did you key in on anything? That was it. What it seemed to be is kind of kind of a two part process. Um, and honestly, Chatfield's water temperature was about two degrees warmer, and it seemed like the fisheries with the warmer water had less effect. And, and you know, that's just like springtime conditions versus fall conditions. You know, when that water's colder, fish are more susceptible to be affected by cold fronts. You know, they're they're trying to let that water warm up. They're getting more active with the warm water, and then you get a cool down, and it and it kind of slows them down. So uh, the slightly warmer water at Chatfield seemed to help that bite. Um, and then the other big thing there is is Cherry Creek has endless food right now. You know, the, the, the shad population at Cherry Creek is through the roof. They're still feeding on some midges. They're feeding on some crawdads. So they have so much food there. Um, you could, they can almost afford to miss a meal. Chatfield, uh, we're in a very kind of a, a slower pace right now for the shad. Last year, shad are almost too big for a lot of those 20-inch fish and less. Um, the new shad have not shown up yet. So I don't want to say they're starving, but they're definitely lacking a food source. So it seemed like they, they weren't able to miss a day of feed. Uh, so it's kind of a combination of the warmer water and, and a lacking food source that, that made those fish continue to bite. So that's kind of the one of the biggest things. And, you know, talking about that, I'd love to kind of, you know, go over what we do in those situations. That's where I know we had a lot of questions on, you know, it's where, at Cherry Creek, when all of a sudden you see uh, a slowdown, you know what I mean? You're out there, the, the normal day's been rocking and rolling, and then all of a sudden you get a day where things toughen up and it gets, gets more brutal. Um, you know, we slow things down. So in one you know situation, we were casting, you know, uh, paddle tail jigs, casting jigs to walleyes. So pitching them in 8, 10 feet of water and hopping it back. Um, when that cold front hit, it really pushed those fish down to the bottom um, and just kind of slowed them down. So we we're actually forced to drag our jigs. So whether you're casting uh, a heavier jig, like a three-eighth ounce jig, and just slow reeling and literally rolling it along bottom, um, or a lot of times we actually use our electric motor, put our electric motor at a half mile an hour, did a full cast worth of line behind the boat and just drug them. And when I say drag, I mean as literal as it sounds, dragging, no popping, no throbbing the rod, just straight dragging that bait. Um, and it's crazy how those fish reacted immediately uh, and took off to that technique. So when the bite slowed, we went from jigging, which was hopping the jig eight, 10 inches, uh, you know, which was too much action for them. It wasn't worth their energy to chase it down. And we slowed it down to that slow drag uh, and immediately found all those bites that we were missing uh, on the jig, how the previous days has been catching fish. So things like that. Then we also saw a situation where on live bait rigs, so whether you're using like a revolve hook or, you know, a Lindy rig, a live bait rig, whatever the case may be, my normal day-to-day is about a four-foot leader on those live bait rigs. So from your weight, whether it's a bottom bounce or a sliding weight, you know, it doesn't matter. But from that weight system to your hook, my general go-to is about four feet. And during that storm front, we had to extend that to six feet. 
Uh, it's one of those things that, that that storm front just made the fish just a little picky. They were real weary of the weight system. They were scared of the weight system. So adding a little length to our leader material uh, drastically, again, brought back those bites that we had lost in that post-front conditions. Um, so, again, it's all about adapting. Small changes uh, go a long ways. Don't tell yourself, hey, they're just not biting. Change things up. Don't just go with what worked the day before. You know, uh, we, we tend to hang on to patterns too long. You know, hey, last year, the first week of June, this is what worked. So it should work this year. That's never the case. So maybe start with those techniques, but then adapt to what the current conditions are. And that's how you're going to catch more and bigger fish at the end of the day. Well, you know, um, something really jumped out at me while you were going through that. One is how, <clears throat> excuse me, one is how you change your jigging presentation to dragging it. And contrary to what a lot of people think, when you extend a leader, say, behind a bottom bouncer, that bait actually doesn't go up in the column. It goes closer to the bottom. Yep. So now you go from four to six feet. You probably were putting that bait down where you were dragging that jig. That's exactly it. Again, it's just that catering. And those, those fish will do that. They're hunker down. They'll slow down. Uh, all the stuff just kind of slows down. And again, it's a small little, you know, changing a, a slight adaption here and there. Um, and you just drastically increase those takes and, and catch more fish. So, um, again, and we can do a three-hour seminar on all the things. You can adjust your crankbait and everything else. But the biggest thing is... If, you know, you have high pressure, if a storm comes through, whatever the case may be, learn to adapt with those fish. And then, like Pueblo, uh, during that when I was downing there during that rainstorm for two days, um, and I was fishing, like, the backs of the coves. So the south side, uh, we were throwing paddle tail jigs on any sort of structure, but the the back section, so the, the shallower section of those coves, had the warmest water and the most fish. It had the most food as well. Um so literally we're starting the back of the bays and my, my one of the first days down there in the first three, four hours, we had 60 fish and then the bite just slowly got worse and worse, but it was due to our water clarity. All of a sudden, all those little feeder creeks in the back of all these coves, all that rain were bringing mud in and we were losing visibility in the, in the one day in about four hours, I went from a six foot visibility down to about 10 inches of visibility. So we just slowly crept with that dirty water. So I just went from interior point to interior point and just kept going out towards the lake as I had to follow that dirty water. Because, um, again, water, you know, warmth uh, was a priority. So we wanted to stay back as long as we could, but obviously fishing in extremely dirty water is not beneficial simply for the fact that fish cannot find the bait. Um, so that trick was all chasing that water. We did also try to make, you know, more noise with our bait. So running larger paddle tails to put off more of a thump. We even fished some blade baits in that situation, you know, to try to overcome that dirty water. But again, long story short, it's all about adapting small little changes to, to keep up with the you know, changing conditions of, uh, of, you know, fishing frontal conditions. I'll tell you what, it's it's going to keep changing. Hopefully we're going to get some steady warm weather. But I think we've gone over and over that in the show today already that you just got to adapt to the conditions. So let's look out the next few days. It's supposed to be off and on storms coming through like we get in the summer, but not the steady rain. It's supposed to be warmer, except for most days it's going to be up around the 80s. Where do you go from here? What, what's your, what do you think, where, where would you go? You're planning your fishing trips for the next week. Yeah, so we got a couple different things I'd love to talk about. So number one, as the front range, so you're talking your Pueblo, Chapel, Cherry Creek, Boyd, 
as your front range, your walleye bass waters warm up with the sun, those fish are just going to continue into their summer pattern. So it will increase fishing. You're going to see your walleye stacking on structure. Um, you're going to see your bass getting more active. So on the, the warm water species side, it's really helping out. It's, it's just getting the summer patterns fired up, um, and it's a good thing. On the cold water stuff, so your pike, your lake trout, they are actually going to drop in the water column hair more so they're going to drop in just a slightly deeper water you know our lakers are going from that 20 40 foot down to that 50 to 70 foot uh our pike instead of being up in that you know really shallow one two feet of water are actually sliding out and suspending a little bit uh just to get out of that direct sun they'll still go up during the day in sun but they're spending the majority of their time just slightly deeper uh so that's kind of the biggest thing on the cold water stuff but the one thing i do want to say is when I'm on the water, let's just say I go out this weekend and then I go out next weekend. So let's say I fish a a week apart. When I am coming to and from the reservoirs, I'm really paying attention to water levels. Normally, Terry, right now we are filling almost everywhere. Right now, just looking at the lakes that we guide on, we're about split. Pueblo is coming up. Antero is coming up. Spinney is coming up. Chatfield is going down. Uh, Cherry Creek is coming up. So all these reservoirs have fluctuating water, and fish drastically grab to those changes. You have rising water. Almost all your fish pile into that new water. There's so many nutrients and good food in that shallow water. Uh, so, you know, water comes up, your walleyes pile up on a shore like a bass. Um, you know, when that water comes up, for in a lot of species, they're going to follow it. When that water retreats, like chapter, that water's dropping. Those fish fear ever getting stuck in that shallow water so a walleye could literally be on on a shoreline pattern you drop that water six eight inches and they will beehive it to the middle of the lake and sit on structure out in the middle so we're really paying attention to water level just to give us the the slight cue of of what the fish are going to be doing so you have rising water i'm instantly looking for the fish in shallower shoreline type areas we have descending water that water shrinking down uh, I'm really focusing on, on main lake structure, kind of out in the middle of the lake, uh, and that's where I find those fish. So more than anything, these are slight changes that you can pay attention to. You know, when you leave the boat dock for a day, look at a rock on shore. Look at where the water level is at a certain, you know, key landmark, um, and just keep an eye on that as you kind of come and go to the lake, um, and it'll shock you that you can see those changes and you can really adapt from there. All right, last question. What What is your level of confidence in maintaining water levels through this season. I'm getting a little worried. You know, Terry, I mean, it's one of those things that I think, you know, Austin mentioned it and kind of hit it on the head. Um, as much as I hate to say it, you know, as anglers, as, a, as probably one of the more hardcore sports of the state, I mean, I live on the water seven days a week. Um, I mean, our reservoirs are built as water storage. Um, you know, we don't have any choice of that. You know, fishing is down the list on the concepts of water management, water storage. Um, the biggest things that I do is I look at what the fisheries are. So if the entity that maintains and controls the water, if they sell water, so, you know, Aurora, Denver, 
they sole purpose that water for those towns, for the townships, uh, and they maintain it. Only when they feel they have enough for the entire year do they sell it. So I'm confident in like our Aurora water source up until about September. In September, if they have ex- excess water, they then sell it third party, and that's like where your Spinning Mountain Reservoirs close the boating. So a lot of it depends on what entity it is. Uh, I can tell you right now, I am standing on an internal reservoir, and the Continental Divide is loaded with snow. So I do feel there's still quite a bit of runoff coming um, to maintain these fisheries that I am on. Now, what July, August, September brings is hard to say, but, you know, hit it hard while you can, you know, plan a long-range forecast of where you fish and fish the fisheries that might end up getting closed right now while you can uh, and, and make the most of it. And I know we're out of time, Trey. The last thing I'm going to say, everybody now should have their big game results from the draw uh, out. If you haven't, checked your email. Uh, and more than anything, I just want to say stay tuned because over the next month or so, we'll slowly start dropping little hints uh, and ideas of planning those upcoming big game hunts. So keep that in mind as well. All right, my friend, we will talk to you next week. Great information as always. All right, Nate Zielinski. And by the way, when we do these extensive reports like this, we will post the podcast on our social media. You should follow us on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on Facebook, and uh, you can keep up with everything going on in the show. We're going to take a time out. We come back. The folks from Jack's are going to join us, and we're going to tell you how to get the right sleeping bag. All that and more coming up on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan, brought to you in part by Jack's Outdoor Gear. Let's go to the phones, and joining us from the Jackson Fort Collin is Dennis Pepper Pendleton. Good morning, Dennis. Hey, good morning, Terry. How you doing? You know, I'm doing okay. I'm looking outside. It's beautiful out there. You know, more and more people are enjoying the outdoors in Colorado than ever, and they're expanding their activities, and we're probably going to have a great summer for camping. And I talked to one of the Jack's people a couple weeks ago about getting a tent, but we we need to talk also about sleeping bags. I mean, I think sometimes people overlook how important that is and what the variables are and how much difference things can make, don't you? Absolutely. You know, there's two really important things. If you get out to the outdoors and you don't sleep well or if you're not eating, you're not going to enjoy yourself. So it's, it's drastically important. No, you're absolutely right. And there's different needs and different ways to address them. You and I have talked before. We talked about like car camping where you just drive up and you don't have to pack your stuff in or backpacking. Let's take Sam. I'm finally, I've got a tent or some means I'm finally going to get into the high country. We did a a thing earlier about these cutthroat trout up in the high mountains. You can hike from two to 12 miles in and they're beautiful cutthroats and there's dispersed camping available. What are you going to ask me about my sleeping bag before you sell me one? Well, first of all, I'm going to ask you, you hit it on the head already. Um, Are you car camping or are you backpacking? Because that's the number one thing. If, if you're going to go backpacking, you have to have a bag that's going to fit in your pack. If it doesn't fit in your pack, it's not going to do you any good. So right away, you're most likely going to be looking at a down bag. And the, the basic differences in down and synthetic are two things, volume and weight. A synthetic bag, it takes up a lot more volume and it weighs more. 
And backpackers, if you've ever talked to one, they're all about weight. They count the ounces. I've known guys that cut the tags out of their shirts. Are you there? Yes, sir. Oh, I thought I lost you for a minute. Yeah, I, I mean, that might be a little extreme, but I understand it. I mean, when you're hiking, say you're hiking five or six, seven miles up to make camp, every little thing is going to wear you out or wear you down or be heavy on you. So you're going to eliminate everything you can. So what's available? What are the choices? for You said down, but do I have a choice of bags? Do I need to look at the weather I'm going to be in? Do I need to look at temperatures? What other, what are variables do I have to look at for that bag? Yeah, you're going to be looking at where you're going, what time of year you're going. Uh, the East coast is a lot wetter than the West coast. Um, you know, um, the, the time of year, the altitude you're going to be at, are you going to be sleeping on the ground? Are you going to be in, say, you're going to rent a yurt or a hut? All of these things are extremely important. Um, like I said, if you're going to be putting it in a backpack, though, you're probably going to want to look at a down bag. They're lighter. They're smaller when you pack them up. And uh, in, in general terms, they're warmer. The only benefit that you're really going to get out of a synthetic bag is, number one, they're generally a little bit cheaper. And if that bag does happen to get wet, it's going to keep you warm, at least a little bit warm for the night to where you can get out in the morning and you can try to dry that bag. If you've got a down bag and it gets soaking wet, you're not going to be warm. It's just not going to help you at all. But that's why they go to such drastic matters to keep those bags dry. So, so what kind of money, if I'm a backpacker, what do I have to look at as far as buying a bag? Uh, what kind of price range? Well, uh, we've got down bags, and again, that it depends on how much down is in the bag because you pay for every ounce of that down. So we've got summer bags that are only $100. But then you go all the way up to a first-rate zero-degree Western Mountaineering bag. That'll cost you, you can pay easily $900 for a bag like that. Now, if I'm sleeping in a tent up at, say, nine or 10,000 feet, it could still get pretty cold. So I probably can't get by with just a summer bag, right? No, if you're up 10,000 feet or above, you're going to want at least a 15-degree bag. I'll steer somebody in the 15- to 10-degree bag, and that really will last you three full seasons. The only time you'll need to get something drastically warmer or colder than that is if you're in the heat of summer and you're down low, say, on the East Coast, or if you're above you know, above 10,000 feet and in the winter time. Uh, if you're winter camping, I mean, you're, at, you're sleeping on snow, you have to take that seriously because it's not easy to deal with. I mean, you can no deal with the wind, no. but you're going to have to protect yourself from the surround cold and from the cold coming up from the ground. Okay, now let's say... I want to get to the ground thing in a minute, but let's go, let's just say I'm car camping. I'm driving up, so I'm not as concerned about the weight or the volume because I can put a lot of stuff in the back of my SUV. What are you going to ask me? What do I need to consider then? Uh, you, you can be a lot more lenient on yourself then. Uh, you can get a, a much warmer bag, a bigger, fluffier bag 
that's you know high in volume because you don't have to put it in a pack. Then we're really only looking at. Are you going to stay in a tent? Are, you know, most people that go camping, even if they're car camping, they're still going to put a tent up outside their car. So is it just you? Are you is there two people in the tent? Do you usually sleep warm, cold? Are you a side sleeper? That, you know, there's still some variables there, depending upon what bag you want to get. And the first thing I'm going to do before I even start asking you questions, I'm going to look you up and down and I'm going to size you. I'm going to say, this is a big guy. He needs a big bag. He's broad in the shoulders. I'm not going to put him in a really narrow mummy bag because he's not going to be comfortable. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right with that. <clears throat> and you talked about being on the ground, too. So before we run out of time, I want to get back to what about pads or layers that go under the, what do I put under my sleeping bag? Well, if you're, if you're sleeping on the ground in the winter time, you're sleeping on snow, the first thing you're going to put down is some kind of ground cloth underneath your tent. Then you're going to put your tent down. Inside the tent, you're going to put a foam pad down, a dense foam, like a nitrogen foam. This is going to keep the warmth that you're generating from going and just escaping straight down into the snow. And it's gonna keep that cold from coming up from the ground. On top of that foam pad, you're gonna put an air mattress. Your body warms up the air inside that mattress and that you're gonna keep warm all night long. If you you exclude that foam pad though, your, your body will not produce enough heat to keep that air mattress warm. So what about cots? How do you feel about cots, and is there a wide range of availability for them? And can I backpack with a cot? They actually do make backpacking cots now that are pretty small and lightweight. They're not, like everything else in the backpacking world, the more compact and the more light it gets, the more expensive it is. But they do make them, and they are very good. Um, if you're winter camping, then it's, it's a possibility. You know, it's something you're getting up off the ground. You're going to be a little bit warmer. Um, Now, for the car campers, it's not a bad idea at all because you don't have to carry that weight or that volume. The backpackers mostly, you know, those guys, they rough it a lot. So you're going to cast aside a little bit of comfort to uh, lighten your pack. But they're definitely an option now. All right, we are running out of time, but those are all great tips. Dennis, I assume you have a full range of uh, sleeping bags and cots at all the Jack's locations? Oh, yes, sir. We are loaded up. And their inventories are good, no problem getting things? You know, it's taken us a while, but we are finally starting to get stuff in, and our shelves are full right now. That's awesome. Dennis, thank you so much for joining us. You're at the Fort Collins store, folks. If you want to talk to Dennis, he goes by Pepper. Stop by the Fort Collins store, and he'll he'll answer all your questions on cots and sleeping bags and tents and what other camping needs you have. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you, Terry. You bet. Before we go to break, we got a question about somebody who changed their fishing rod because one broke, and um, and they want to know if it changed their presentation because they started catching less fish. When we get back from this break, Chad Lachance is going to join us. And before we get into his topic, we'll start with this question on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan.
You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. <clears throat> Let's go to the phones to, I believe, our longest continuous steady contributor on the show. It's been like, I think, 137 years now, Chad. You've been on, Chad LaChance. <laughs> yeah, I think something like that, Terry. It's starting to feel like it. <laughs> hey, I know you want to talk about post-spawn bass, and it is a great topic. But before we get into that, we just got a text and during the last segment goes, I broke the end off my pole, shutting it in my door. And that's never happened to ex- experts like us, right? I've never done that. Nope. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I went ahead and threw my ultralight on. Is this going to change my jig presentation so much that I'm not going to catch walleye? I'm fishing from shore and I was nailing them. And seem to not now with the ultralight. Now, there could be other variables. They, the bike could have stopped. But I think your answer is going to be the same as mine. It definitely will change it, won't it? Oh, absolutely. No question about it. Uh, I'm a giant advocate of you pick your lure, then you pick your line, then you pick your rod. It's a system. And, uh, and you know, I was out guiding all day yesterday, and you matched the, the presentation to the rod without question. And uh, it was part of the, the class I was doing. And, yeah, for sure. And generally, if I'm going to do any jigging for walleye, depending on the jig hit or, you know, what, what size of jig, I'm going to be in a medium light to medium. Um, and so for sure, there's no, no chance that I'm going jigging for walleyes with an ultralight. Well, and, and, you know, to jig anything with an ultralight, unless you're using a very small jig, when you move the rod, the rod tip bends, but the jig doesn't move. So you completely changed your, just completely changed your presentation. Yeah, I agree 100%, and especially if he's using uh, monofilament, nylon monofilament, uh, because at that point you've got so much stretch in the line and sponginess in the line as well as the rod that, yeah, it, it not, not only is he not probably going to get as much motion out of his jig, he's not going to detect as many bites, and he's dang sure not going to get as many good hook sets. No, I couldn't agree more. So, yeah. Um, I don't know who sent the text. I just got it written down to me. It didn't come with the name, but whoever you are, call one of our sponsors. They want to sell you a new rod. But no, no, in all honesty, seriously, um, you wouldn't play golf with one club. You just need rods for different presentations. Chad, post-spawn bass, has it been warm enough in the water to get post-spawn bass? Well, yeah. So I made my rounds and looked around and, uh, and so, for instance, in the reservoirs around here, we've got fish in all stages now. So, uh, or at least here at Horsetooth Reservoir, we've got fish in all stages. We still have fish that are spawning. We've got fish that are trying, you know, to come in. And then we've got a bunch of fish that are that are very beat up that, that are coming off the spawn at this point. And, um, and then in the ponds around town, most of the, those fish were on beds, you know, two, three, four weeks ago. So now we've got a bunch of them should be at post-spawn as well. And the post-spawn period, it's not too difficult to locate fish. It's sometimes difficult to get them to commit to biting. And, uh, and that's really where the, where the trick is with post-spawn. So what do you have to do different? I know pre-spawn, the fish are usually aggressively feeding. You can get reaction strikes and they're cruising, looking during the spawn. Sometimes they can get in different, depends on what they're doing. You can maybe trigger them to protect the nest. Now they're post-spawn. They should be feeding to regain health, but what do I have to do? Well, the problem with them in post-spawn, Terry, too, is that they're, they're not particularly healthy. They get beat up. They get skinny. Uh, and in a lot of cases, in the case of like here at Horsetooth, about 
50% of the bass we caught yesterday showed evidence of having been caught in the last couple of weeks. And uh, so they're getting gun shy. So we end up with fish that nip at stuff and don't really want to pick it up or that will just generally roll it a bait. So generally the first thing I try to get fish to do during a post-spawn period is work towards topwater types, but I don't necessarily go to a traditional topwater, like right on the surface of the water. Uh, I like baits that don't vacate areas in a hurry. In other words, not a fast-moving bait, but a bait that works a small strike zone. And uh, one of my best tricks for it, and I I, I really shouldn't even probably talk about this one, but I will, and I just had a long talk with Dan Spangler, the hard bait development guy from from Berkeley. Uh, One of the best ways to do it is, is a twitch bait. And I do it with a with a Berkeley hit stick. Uh, folks that aren't familiar with that bait, it's it's basically a modern version of a floating Rapala minnow. And the deal with it is, you throw it, you just barely floats, and it, it rises to the surface. If it goes underwater, just barely twitch it along, just barely getting it to go under the surface and then pop back up to the surface film. You're, the, the goal is to leave it in an area that you believe the fish are in for as long as possible, but make it just barely hang there so it goes under the surface a little bit comes forward an inch or two and then pop right back to the surface and uh, that can be an absolutely great way to get fish to to stay pinned because i can get them to bite on maybe a popper which is my second choice but you're going to get a lot of fish that roll at it and don't really get it because they're timid and uh and that can can really be uh be an issue so i mean like talking about making five casts to the same spot and getting fish to roll at it five times but nobody ever actually get a hold of the bait and then you throw a throwback bait which we would do in the summer something like a a soft stick worm like uh like the general or something like that and then they don't want it it's it's really has to do with the fact that you're almost irritating the fish i think the top water does that if you start doing any sort of a fast bait, like a choppa or a buzz bait, you'll run out of bites altogether. Because as long as the bait vacates away from the fish, they don't seem to care. So it's, it needs to be something that stays in their area, if at all possible, and hovers over their head to some degree is kind of how I look at it. So, And where I would locate those fish um, is the same place I found them pre-spawn. So, for instance, here at Horsetooth. During the pre-spawn, you'll catch them on points or secondary points as they're coming into the coves. Well, they're going to go back to those same points as they're coming out of the coves as well. And so not terribly difficult to, uh, to locate them in that regard. The other thing is you'll still have um, some fry garters around for sure, which are bass that are guarding their males and they're guarding their fry that have already hatched. And you'll see them work in a small area, not like a bed, not like they're sitting on a bed in one spot, but they're working a small area in the area adjacent to wherever they bedded. And you'll see them. They'll just be literally looking around. And those fish are guarding their babies. In another week, they'll eat their babies. But but they're garters, and those fish definitely will pop something hanging over the top of their head for sure or something that that is very much a bluegill thing. And, and Berkeley launched the gilly. I think you're probably familiar with it, the hyper-realistic bluegill, soft plastic bluegill. Excellent choice around the post-spawn because bluegills love baby bass. Oh, they do. There's no doubt about that. In fact, he mentioned that the bass will eat their young. A lot of ponds, the main, the main food source for bass are panfish and baby bass. Yeah, absolutely, and they return the favor back and forth. So when the bluegills spawn, the bass will eat them, and when the bass are 
are spawning the bluegills will eat their babies, just similar to the brown trout, rainbow trout relationship. So I think Mother Nature designed it that way. But, um, but yeah, very much so. And, but if you put something like a crayfish down there, I don't think it pr- produces the same threat to the fish. So as it, like, for instance, on a nest when there's eggs, people are bed fishing, which I'm not really much of an advocate of, and certainly not for bragging rights because anybody can catch them when they're sitting on a bed and not willing to leave. But a crayfish or something's very good in that scenario. But once they're guarding fry, not so much because a crayfish isn't much of a predator of the fry. So there you're better with a minnow presentation, maybe a soft jerk bait like a, like a you know power jerk shad, something like that. But again, you want a bait that's going to stay in a smaller area and give them more more time to be irritated by it, so to speak. You know, if you if you have a sister or brother or a little kid, you know, the whole, you know, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you, just crowding you in the back seat kind of thing, that's basically what you want your lure to do, and they'll eventually get mad and grab it. Now, the reservoirs like Horsetooth or Boyd, compared to like a lot of the smaller ponds that really hold a lot of good bass, do you approach them any differently, or is it the same baits? Uh, same baits. I'll run the same baits for sure. The difference more is to do with the timing, and um, that's that's really what it comes down to. So, you know, horse tooth right now is hovering right around 60, 61 degrees, depending on where you are. It, was, it backed all the way down to 55. So you've got literally some fish coming in, some fish that are spawned, uh, you know, on beds right now, and then you've got others that are done. In the ponds, I think it happens in a shorter window for starters. The ponds warm quicker, so it happens earlier. And uh, But the fundamentals are the same. The bass do the same, whether they're smallmouth or largemouth bass. They're, they're, you know, as they come in, they're feeding in. When they spawn, they're not eating at all but they can be provoked into biting by by uh, basically threatening them and then now you can really more irritate them into biting and uh, it's not really a threatening or a territorial thing it's more of just they seem to be irritable and the biggest thing is if you're getting a bunch of fish to roll at a bait put it down and find something else and typically something just barely under the surface is a good call that's um, not sinking you know like I said right under the surface an unweighted jerk shad or like I said that, that hit stick or floating rapala type presentation really good and I throw big ones I throw a 11 or a 13 uh, even for the smallmouth I'm not throwing the little bait because again it's an irritant and the bigger the bait is the bigger it, it can be an irritant and and uh, your bride and producer Karen may remember we, we had a large mouth I couldn't get to bite one time at Carter Lake on film and I tripled the size of my lure and threw it back and oh lo lo behold he'd smoke it immediately and that was a fry garter and uh he kept looking at my bait wouldn't grab it and as soon as i made it great big now he was like okay time to go gotta eat that thing and he did now do you think a lot of the ponds are past the irritation phase uh, I think that's possible, Terry, and, and I didn't do enough fishing to be honest about that, but the beauty of that is, and here's the other the other thing, the topwater works really good, or the barely subsurface, like a twitch bait works really good right on the post-spawn, but as we come out of the post-spawn and into the summertime, the ponds are primed for topwater fishing anyway for a different reason. They're straight up feeding at that point, but the topwater bait's usually one of the first things I'll gravitate to in a pond anytime in June or July because I don't have to deal with snagging. It's fun. I don't have to, um, you know, there's not just, I don't know, it's just fun. At the end of the day, it's just fun. I guess I can make all the reasons to do it in the world, but it's fun. And uh, it, <clears throat> if I'm going pond fishing, I'm probably throwing either a surface popper or a weedless frog. 
Yeah, both are very good. But the frogs are really coming to prominence. One of the things you have to be a little careful, a lot of these ponds are going to start really getting weedy by the edges. So you have to make a presentation that you can either make on the outside edge of the weeds, weeds from shore if you're fishing, or something that you've got really hefty gear that you can get through those weeds. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing you have to be careful of as well is even if you can, even if the weeds aren't quite on the surface yet, if you get a bait with multiple trebles and then you hook a decent bass, he'll pull you down those weeds and the trebles will hang on to a bunch of the weeds and make your battle a lot worse. So a lure with a single hook uh, can be better in that regard because even if he dives in the weeds, at least your lure's not hanging all the weeds. So something with a single hook, like a, again, a soft jerk bait, uh, a weedless frog, uh, something that's not going to snag the weeds because really you're not going to have a lot of leverage on the fish from the pond because you're on the bank, you make a 50-foot cast out to the weed edge, but you got to get them over those weeds and back to you, and uh, their instinct is going to be to dive into the elodia grass, and then you're going to snag it. So uh, you got to keep that in mind as well. And and there, I'm almost always using braid and uh, and a relatively stiff rod, regardless of my presentation, more because I need to get the fish back to me. Chad, we are out of time. If people want to get a hold of you, how do they do that? Uh, com, and we are still booking uh, folks. We were previously booked out, but I hired Jeff Caldwell, so we are definitely booking, and fishing's very good right now. Uh, so com, and then, of course, on Facebook, Instagram, or our YouTube channel, especially all of those are at FishfulThinker. All right, my friend. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks very much. Sorry, travel safe. You bet. Chad LaChance. We'll take a quick time out. We'll come back and wrap up this week's edition of Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. When life has got you down and the world's crashing all around, you can always count on me. Count on me to put my. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 1043 The Fan. And that was one of our cuts from our current release, Loneliness and Love from Wickstrom and Dobrith. When we're not doing outdoors, we're making music. So follow us on social media and on your favorite streaming station. KKFN and KKFN HD1, Longmont, Denver. Live from the Super... We're going to be announcing that in about a month or so. But anyway, you got to get out fishing. The fishing is just going to get better and better. We're in that magical time from now through the end of June where it's going to be maybe not the most big fish you'll ever catch, but it's going to be the most fish if you do it right. If you pay attention to us, listen and get out there, it's going to change over the next week or two, and it's going to settle into a summer pattern for two, three weeks, and this fishing is going to get very, very good. Hearing mixed reports on the water level, so we're going to watch that very closely. That could affect are fishing later on in the year. Right now, we should be okay, but rising or falling water is going to change the fishing. <clears throat> make sure you follow us. <clears throat> All right, excuse me. Also, make sure you follow us on social media, Facebook and YouTube. Best of Fishing with Terry Wickstrom on YouTube. There's like 170 episodes up there. Half of those were filmed right here in your backyard. A lot of the fishing we talk about right on this show uh, the high mountain cutthroat trout that we talked about in the first hour, we took horseback up to fish some of those trout, and you can just see how fantastic it was. Went up there with Kirk Bean, if you want to take a look at that. And, of course, Facebook. 
Facebook is the hub of this show. We, uh, we, if we're having a very special guest, we announce that ahead of time on Facebook. We post a number of our podcasts on Facebook. You'll see three or four of the key ones up there. Now, all our podcasts are available on 1043thefan.com and go to the Terry Wickstrom Outdoor page. <clears throat> but we emphasize some because of their timeliness. We just thought they really hit home. So you get a lot of our, our podcasts on our Facebook page. And, of course, you can follow our social media for Wickstrom and Dover, too, for our music. We appreciate that. Now, we've got to talk about the Avs. I would love to see the Avs come out and just have another dominant performance. I mean, they need to probably win one in Edmonton to really keep their confidence high. And Edmonton's a good team, so to say we'd sweep them is probably reaching for too much. But I'm excited. I think they've got the monkey off their back. They're showing us what they can do. And they're just a great, fun hockey team to watch. We're going to let you go. Join us every week from 9 to 11 right here on 104.3 The Fan. Follow us on Facebook. And we'll let the Eagles take us to the top of the hour and ESPN Sports on 104.3 The Fan.